Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Good morning, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. I'm sitting here with my co-host, Kayla Solomon. How are you this morning, Kayla? I am good. Good morning. We have a, a wonderful guest that we had on last week. And she was so incredible that we needed to continue this interview. So today we're speaking with Jacqueline Brown. I want to let everybody know that Jacqueline is a coach, organizer, advocate, harm reductionist, and podcaster. She is an impacted family member who has lost her younger brother, Mark, to a heroin overdose on November 16, 2018. Since then, she has channeled her grief into speaking out about addiction and mental health. She's a coach and consultant for Stay Golden Coaching and the Advocacy Project, as well as Partnership to End Addiction. She's very passionate about harm reduction, and she is the volunteer coordinator for Shot in the Dark, a Phoenix, Arizona syringe service program. Additionally, Jacqueline is the host of Dark and Enlightened, a podcast with open and honest conversations about dark and stigmatizing topics. So thank you for coming back and visiting with us again, Jacqueline. Thank you for having me back. (laughs) Okay, so in our last episode, in the beginning of the episode, you gave us a, a great description of your experience while your brother was on his journey. So I think we all felt that that particular episode may be a little bit more about your brother's journey. Absolutely. Right. And not the kind of after effect in your journey. So we brought you back on because we want to hear more about that. That's the codependent in me talking about everyone else, but me. (laughs) Nobody on this who's listening could relate to that, by the way. (laughs) But why don't why don't we pick it up from there then? Why don't you kind of broaden out and let's let's hear about Jacqueline? Yeah, absolutely. So just to give background as well, I up until my brother passed away was not involved in any sort of advocacy, any sort of really public speaking or openness about addiction. I think we touched on this in the last episode that Due to the stigma of it, I didn't want anyone to judge my brother, my family, myself for what was going on. And once he passed away, I truly felt like, well, the worst has happened. I mean, there really isn't anything worse that can go on at this point. So my brother was a very open and honest person. And that's one characteristic that I brought forward after his passing, because I think um, this might resonate with people is that you kind of live two separate lives. You have this social media life where look at me and my husband and my dogs and we're so happy and we travel and it's great. And then internally, I'm losing my mind, constantly stressed out about what's going on. So 
the way that I first got into advocacy was I wrote blog posts. I did a couple blog posts for Shatterproof and I did a fundraiser for them because after the funeral, and I can't remember if I touched on this last time, but after the funeral, it seems like everybody's world keeps moving. And then mine was at a standstill. And so I felt like, why is no one talking about him anymore? So I felt big sister slash third parent. It's my duty to make his memory, you know, evident still. So um, I put together this event by myself and it was just like a one mile walk in his honor. It was called Mark Smile. Had 100 people show up. That was the first time I've ever organized anything. And I thought... And this was at like six months. So I thought like, wow, this is going to be really cathartic. Having all his friends come out and family and all this is going to be great. No, it wasn't like, yeah, at the time. But afterwards, I felt so drained and like. It, it didn't give me what the movies would give you, you know, you have this great, glorious event and it's so fantastic and you're healed and you move on from grief. No, that's not what happened at all. I actually kind of pulled back from a lot of things. And then as time went on, it was, you know, still trying to find my way of how can I advocate? How can I do things? And I think I mentioned this last time, but I gave a speech at Shatterproof's 5K event. And I thought, okay, this is going to be cathartic. Okay, this is what I'm looking for is I'm going to give this speech. It's a week before his one year anniversary. It's going to be amazing. And it wasn't. Like, sure, maybe the speech was amazing, but I felt very drained again. And a friend of mine, her name is Patty. She wrote a blog once and she talked about she lost her son to an overdose. And she talked about the importance of white space on the calendar, meaning blank, not having plans, not filling up your calendar. I had no white space because I thought if I keep working through this grief, it'll go away. Clearly, because I'm going to grief counseling every single week. I am reading all the grief books. I am in all the grief groups. I'm in every possible thing because my analytical brain is like, this is how you work through it. You just fire hose it and then we move on. No, that's, <laughs> that's not how it works. And so after that, I definitely pulled back uh, a bit because... One thing that I don't know if we discussed last time is how impactful grief can be on your body, like your physical health, the stress of that. I, during that time frame, there was a period of three months straight where every night I would have coughing fits and could not, it was coughing fits to the point where I would throw up and my doctor was convinced, oh, you have a uh, GERD. And I'm like, I don't think this is GERD. Eventually though, I got diagnosed with asthma, which I would have never expected. Another piece of it as time went on is I ended up getting an autoimmune disease which is called ITP, which is short for immune thrombocytopenia purpura, you know, very common. No, it's not. And that is something where your immune system attacks your platelets. So for people who don't know, platelets are the blood cells that clot your blood. If you get cut, anything like that, they show up and they clot. 
your normal level that you should have in your body is maybe 150,000 to 400,000. And I, at various points within a couple week period, had 3,000. So anything below 10,000 puts you at risk for brain hemorrhaging, internal bleeding that won't stop. So all sorts of fun stuff. So that was the first time I'd ever been in the hospital. And mind you, this was now, this was end of 2019. So this is just over a year after my brother passed. And I remember thinking, okay, the universe is really trying to tell me something because like I'm having all these health issues and I feel like you keep pushing. Like my tank was empty, but I was like, we have to keep going because that's how I was raised. You just move through a lot of stuff like growing up. Both my parents had cancer, variety of cancer. My dad had pancreatic cancer at one point, and he's still here. So I've gone through a variety of random type. Like to me, it's standard for someone to have cancer to have some fire going on. So for my body to finally shut down and be like, nope, we're not doing this. It was like, okay, I will listen, maybe. So I like the maybe. Yeah, exactly. It, it was still an asterisk. I just want to say one thing, Jacqueline. Part of the story is that your body had not just been doing this for a year. Your body had been doing this for the time that you were engaged with your brother and trying to keep him alive and worrying about him. And well, we describe it as, well, I describe it as battery acid, you know, drinking battery acid on a daily basis. And then we wonder why we don't feel good. And what happens is that if you're doing then that's one coping mechanism. But the other part that you're referring to is when you stop, that's when it's kind of like you hit the wall and everything catches up with you. But in terms of grief, you cannot experience grief if you're moving. You're just pushing and the grief is getting processed differently in your body. It's still there, but it doesn't get to be processed well. And thank you for calling that out, too, because I don't think a lot of people realize the impact it can have on family members, that long term stress of waiting for that phone call, waiting for what, you know, the other shoe to drop, whatever it may be. Oh, you're in recovery, waiting for that call that nope, they're using again. Like you are constantly in like this fight mode and I probably don't have cortisol in my system anymore. Like, I feel like I've drained it all because I've constantly been in this mode. And even the doctor at the hospital said, you have one of the most aggressive immune systems I've ever seen in my life. And I, I took that as a compliment. And I was like, well, the only person who can take me down is me. So <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. But she said, like, you know, typically in an autoimmune situation, they give you steroids to shut your immune system down. And they were giving me the largest legal amount of steroids you could give to someone because it was that aggressive. And so this is December 2019. I get sent home as we all know what happens in 2020. I'd been on, so I'd been on quarantine since December. It was so bad to the point that the, the effects of steroids, I don't know if either of you have ever been on steroids long-term, but it was, the side effects are probably like four pages long. And every time I would walk a little bit more than a crawl, my legs would, um, 
my muscles would tense up and I would collapse. So I actually had to use like a wheelchair to get around for a month. And it felt very eerie because like my brother after his accident was in a wheelchair for a couple months. So I was like, why is this a weird parallel? Because of course me, I'm trying to like look at the cosmic significance of all of this. Like what is happening here? But like, like you had mentioned, I hit this wall. I was forced to just sit for the first time in my life. I've always been a doer. So it felt very weird to me. So in that time frame, especially also with steroids, you can't sleep ever. I decided I would take this time to do like education. And so I ended up taking a free course online. Have you guys ever heard of Coursera? Yes. Yep. So I took this course called The Addicted Brain, and it was a six-week six week course that was offered. And it really went into not just opioids, but just the effects of how drugs are on the brain, how it affects the neurotransmitters, because I am a very big like science person. I like to understand that piece. And I felt like, okay, I can speak from emotion. That's fine. But what about all those people who say addiction's not a disease, not a disorder? It's a character flaw. It's a choice. Exactly. So for me in my head, I'm like, well, let's just build up our ammo. Like, let's learn all about this. So if anyone wants to come back at me with, oh, no, whatever it is, here's some science I learned. Never heard about neurotransmitters. So I wanted to make sure that I, for me personally, to advocate more effectively, I needed more than just emotion. I wanted to have that additional true science information. And so 2020, as you all know, we all were stuck. And that's when I got an invitation to mobilize recovery. Um, And that's an annual, I think it's convening is the word they prefer over conference. But I remember thinking, I should not be going to this. I'm not in recovery. My brother never made it to long term recovery. Why am I going to go to this? And my friend Lynn, who works at Shatterproof, she was like, you should go. And I thought, I have PTO. I'm bored. I can't go anywhere. So whatever, I'll go. (laughs) And uh, when we went in our first Zoom breakout room, and I might have mentioned this last time, one of the women, you know, I said I wanted to immediately admit I'm a fraud. I should not be here. I'm not in recovery. I don't have anyone in recovery. I'm just putting this out there. I don't know why I'm here. And she said, you know, you are in recovery. You're recovering from the loss of your brother. And it was the first time that I had found a community of people who weren't actively grieving like I was that understood what it was like to potentially lose someone or to have lost someone. And it's a very hard concept. Again, I hate the whole idea of you don't get it until it happens to you like that. That's typically what it is. But I feel like in this instance, that's that's what it is. So as time went on, um, I completed the conference and I I got really interested in the idea of harm reduction. I reached out to someone locally. Shot in the Dark is the largest syringe service program in Arizona. And I said, hey, I'd love to come out and volunteer. And of course, this was during uh, the COVID time. So it was like uh, a very weird situation where Everyone's wearing masks. We're trying to do what we can to accommodate and still provide um, sterile supplies to people. But this was a completely new world for me. And I will say that 
there was definitely a weird juxtaposition of teaching people how to save their people when I couldn't, because I didn't know about naloxone or Narcan or uh, medicated assisted treatment, like that being potentially a long-term approach. I thought it was just a, I just need this for a week to like hold down the craving, you know, to be exposed to this world where people accept that substance use is usually the symptom of something else and not forcing people into treatment and just meeting them where they are was really weird to me. And that might be really weird to a lot of family members as well. I realize now, sure, I could I take I wish I could take my knowledge and go back in time, but if he was going to be on suboxone or methadone or whatever the rest of his life, that's fine. He because he's here. And uh there was there's a really good podcast that came out kind of around the similar time called Last Day. And they focused on uh, the first season is focused on opioids and the woman who hosts it, she lost her brother to an overdose. So I was immediately drawn in by that. But it was discussion with like uh, Gabor Mate and and different people in the field talking about how, you know, because this was another piece. We all grew up the same. So I don't understand what happened with him? We all didn't grow up the same. We had very different experiences and very different versions of our parents. Oh, go ahead. And when you say we all grew up the same, you mean you and your siblings? Mm-hmm. Yep. We all grew up in the same home. We all were exposed to the same stuff. So I, I couldn't understand what happened. But then going back to what I said in the last episode, he had a lot more trauma than I did or my sister did. So understanding that the trauma plays such a huge role. Kayla, were you going to say something? I had a twin brother. And what was fascinating over time is it was like, did we grow up in the same family? Right. <laughs> a different human being who had, you know, like he used to make fun of me for joining things. And he was somebody that you just like put your head down and just go through things. And he was a completely had a completely different experience of our family, even though we were born at the same time, two minutes apart, three minutes (laughs) apart. And, you know, we're in the same classes or whatever. But because of his physiology, because of his perception, because of his way of being in the world, we had different experiences. And that's why when people say I understand to somebody else, I always disagree with that. Nobody understands your life. Exactly. And I think that's really important for loved ones. It's like, we don't understand. We can listen, we could care, we could be interested, but we do not understand what it's like to live in somebody else's shoes. And I say this all the time, you know, I have three kids and all three of them are very different than one another. And they were raised by the same two people, right? Mm-hmm. With the same rules and the same consequences and the same... But you're right, totally different. Their genetic makeup is even different than one another. So I agree, totally different experiences. Exactly. And like getting more into, you know, working with people via the harm reduction or through like advocacy and working with people in recovery and other family members, you know, I realized like the common theme here is trauma, like something happened. And is that always going to be the case? 
maybe not, but I have yet to hear something where something bad didn't happen at some point in life to trigger something else, an accident, something. But another piece of that too is as I'm learning all of this stuff, could I have just like backed away and never talked about heroin or addiction or whatever ever again? Yes. Uh, that would have been really easy. Honestly, that's the rest of my family. Like they don't advocate, but for me, like I wish I had had someone tell me while I was still alive or while my brother was still alive, these are other options outside of detox and rehab, because that's not prevalent when you Google that on the internet. And even with advocacy, you know, at first, a lot of it was very much harm reduction. I support harm reduction. Yay, harm reduction. But I wasn't really tapping into that family piece as much. Just I'm a family member who supports harm reduction, but the, the harm reduction piece was first. As time has evolved with my advocacy and my involvement with Recovery Advocacy Project, this year we started a family caucus and I'm the chair of that. And our focus so far this year has just been education because family members come from so many different backgrounds and we may think that everyone knows about harm reduction or suboxone or whatever it may be, but they may not. So we, we have really focused this year and taken our time to focus on the fact that Let's get everybody the same level of education. Let's have people with lived experience come in and talk about this. Let's talk about craft. Craft was a first, this year was the first time I learned about craft. And it was so refreshing to not hear rock bottom, to like to have this reverse approach of bring them in, meet them where they are. Let's communicate. There's a thought. Let's communicate with them. Let's let's be equals. Which craft is part of harm reduction. It's harm reduction for families. Exactly. And I absolutely love the approach. And there are pieces of it that I was already implementing in my life. There just wasn't a name for it. But to see the model as a whole, to me, was like, this makes sense. And it's such a drastic, different approach from what we were all told, like, let them hit rock bottom, kick them out of the house. Like my parent, my dad could never do that. He was like, I can't do it. I can't let him go out there. And me being naive, I was like, well, if you keep giving him money, you know, because I'm third parents, I see things very logically, like. I'm also not in the situation. I live three hours away. He lives with him. But now understanding the communication piece is so key. And I would love to hear like both of your like experiences regarding craft or what you, what your favorite parts of it are. So I have to tell you, Jacqueline, my, my story is very, very similar to your story as a parent. And I know, I know you're a sibling, but I do think you took on a bit more of a mothering kind of role versus the, versus the sibling. You know, I do think that even when you were going to your parents and saying, kick them out and doing all of that stuff, I still think it was coming from a mother's 
perspective versus a sibling, because a lot of the time siblings are worried about their parents, right? They're not necessarily worried about the other sibling or they are, but it's more like, no, he just has to change. She's just got to. I'm annoyed with him. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I can't, I can't, and I can't, I can't believe what they're doing to you, meaning they're the sibling and you are the parents. And I don't like what they're doing to my parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's what I experienced with, I have two daughters and they, that was what they expressed through this whole turmoil in my family. So my experience is actually very similar to yours. I happened to find craft early on. That's great. Or earlier than you and was able to implement it in my house immediately. That's amazing. Because, yeah. Because as soon as I found it, I was like, this is the way I think. And I became very like, why doesn't everybody, every family in the country know that this is here? And it became my mission to, I've got to get this out. I've got to get craft out and let everybody know, let all of these families know that this is available to them. And also that was the thing about, about craft in meeting, meeting the loved one with substance use disorder where they're at. But also on the flip side of it, I started to think that professionals, traditional treatment, traditional views of the family member, they need to change their approach to the family member. And you got to meet the family where the family's at because the family is experiencing trauma alongside of their loved one. So telling someone to kick their loved one out when they are experiencing their own trauma, you have no idea what's going on inside of their mind and their body. Instead, it's, I'm going to craft the family so that they can then craft their loved ones. So my thing is, is I often tell family members, I don't see an enabler. I don't see anybody that's codependent. What I see is a loving family that is desperately trying to save their loved one. And, you know, maybe right now you're not ready to kick your loved one out, which I don't think people should kick them out. I think that giving other options is a much better approach. But I also don't think it's anybody else's job to tell the family member you should or you shouldn't do something. You should ask them what are they willing to do? What can they do? What are the barriers for you? Because you are experiencing incredibly difficult trauma and turmoil and what you need to do in order to try and keep your whole family whole and and as safe as it possibly can be along with your loved one has to be your what you're capable of dealing with right now right you really have to consider yourself and i believe that that's what that is that it's considering, let me decide for myself and then I will help, you know, let's, let's look at your options. What, what can you do with what you're capable of doing right here and right now? See, and I see craft, especially allies in recovery as this parallel process to what the person dealing with addiction is. So what happens is that the things that we're asking people who to learn about craft to implement are things that were the same thing that you're trying to ask the person who's dealing with the substances. And so I don't ever see it as enabling or codependency either. To me, it's a dynamic. 
And what craft does is it allows you to look at the dynamic and see what's my part in this. And I'll call that the power position because right now you walk in feeling helpless. You have no idea what to do. What we're trained to do is have answers. And as you said, do, what are we going to do? What are we going to take care of? What are we going to make happen? And that is a very dangerous stance to take because it means that you're in charge, you're demeaning the other person, you're taking away their power, and also it doesn't work. So the other models are like, let's do an intervention. We're going to force the person to go into treatment. We're going to we're gonna kick them out of the house. We're going to not speak to them anymore. They're all like very big pronouncements that we make. And then- And they're punishments. And punishments. And what happens is you make a pronouncement, and this is what we talk about all the time- then unless you're willing to stick with it, you've basically made your stance illegitimate. Because if you say, if you do this, I'm going to kick you out, and then you don't kick the person out, then your word means nothing after that. So we don't believe in pronouncements. And on top of it, so there is an added piece to that too, Kayla. Not only let's say you don't follow through with it, but let's say you do follow through with it. And then something horrible happens then the family member is re-traumatized and takes on that guilt and shame. So to me, it's like, I can't, I can't tell you what to do. You might not be prepared to do what I think you should do. And it's really not my position to do it, it or to ask you to do that or expect you to do that. There's all these dynamics going on in there and this one size fit all thing. Mm-mm. But that's why it's the parallel process because what happens is, If we're telling somebody what we think they should do, even as professionals or other participants, then that's we're making a presumption. If we're telling the person who's dealing with substance abuse what they should do, that's a presumption. And what craft is about is creating an environment where the person gets to make the decisions for themselves. But it starts with you. What do I need? What do I want? What's going to work for me at this moment? And so every day you're making a new decision because it could shift from minute to minute about how you feel or what's going on. And if you get stuck in one decision, then that's actually not helpful because it's it's stagnant. Please join us next week for the rest of our interview with Jacqueline Brown. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up For Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.